Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Yes, November 8th, maybe many, many months away. But for those candidates who won last night in Georgia's primary elections, it's another round of campaigning. We'll recap the surprises and not so much of a surprise with winners and look towards November when Julianne Thompson and Fred Hicks will join me later in the program. And in a few moments, I'll speak with Reverend Kim Jackson, also a state senator, on the 21 people murdered yesterday in Uvalde, Texas. Yet another shooting massacre in our nation. These are important conversations coming up. But first, this, as it relates to last night's primary elections, perhaps it wasn't a surprise Republican incumbent Governor Brian Kemp won his party's gubernatorial nomination, but rather by how much over Donald Trump-backed opponent, former Senator David Perdue, as we hear from WAB's politics reporter, Raul Bali. In his victory speech at the College Football Hall of Fame in downtown Atlanta, Governor Kemp spent little time focusing on his four Republican challengers. Looking at the results tonight, it looks like Team Kemp has chopped a lot of wood over the last few months. Kemp then turned much of his speech toward his Democratic opponent, Stacey Abrams. But I want to be crystal clear with all of you here tonight. Our battle is far from over. Tonight, tonight, the fight for the soul of our state begins to make sure that Stacey Abrams is not going to be our governor or the next president. Attorney General Chris Carr also beat back a Trump-endorsed primary challenger. I asked him how he and other Republican candidates will get those who did not vote for them to return in November. What I think Republicans see is there is a great fear and a recognition that 2022 can go the wrong way if we don't come back together. If we don't unify, if we don't get out and vote, Stacey Abrams could be the next governor. Whoever my opponent is could be the next attorney general. Carr's Democratic opponent will be State Senator Jen Jordan. Both the governor's race and attorney general's race will also feature a libertarian on the ballot. Raul Bally, WABE News. In related primary news, Georgia's incumbent Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger will be on the November ballot, avoiding a runoff in the Republican primary. But as Emil Moffitt reports, the Democratic nominee won't be determined until June. Raffensperger had to fend off a challenge from three conservative opponents, including Congressman Jody Heiss, who had the backing of former President Donald Trump. It was Raffensperger who refused to cave to pressure from Trump to illegally overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in Georgia. On the Democratic side, State Representative B. Wynn received the most votes Tuesday, but it was short of a majority. She'll face former State Representative D. Dawkins-Hagler in a June 21st runoff. 
Emil Moffitt, WABE News. And finally, it appears there weren't many problems at the polls yesterday. Metro Atlanta voters say casting a ballot in the primaries on Election Day went pretty smoothly. Some of them said that. A few polling locations in Cobb, Fulton, and DeKalb County stayed open late last night to make up for lost time because of technical issues. Danielle Millitz walked to her polling place in the old Fourth Ward neighborhood. She says there were way more people in line waiting on the last day of er- than on the last day of early in-person voting. There were just really long lines last week, which is great. I'm glad people were out voting, but normally early voting doesn't have that much of a line. It's at the library, and I love going to the library, so there was never a short line in the past five days, which is good. I mean, it's good people are out and voting, although it'd be nice if they could vote easier. State election officials say people turned out to early vote in record numbers this primary, a 189 percent increase from the same point in the 2018 primary election. Now, there are some runoffs that will take place next month, including on the Republican side for the U.S. House District 6, Rich McCormick and Jake Evans will square off. U.S. House District 10, Mike Collins and Vernon Jones, a name you've heard so many times before. On the Democratic side of things for Lieutenant Governor Kwanzaa Hall and Charlie Bailey will meet for Secretary of State. It's B. Wynn and D. Dawkins Hagler for Insurance Commissioner Janice Laws Robinson and Raphael Baker and Labor Commissioner William Bodie and Nicole Horn. So we'll do this again next month. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. As a nation, we're still reacting and responding to the people killed and others injured in the Buffalo, New York grocery store killing. Another mass killing takes place, this time at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. Here's President Joe Biden addressing the nation last night. As a nation, we have to ask, when in God's name are we going to stand up to the gun lobby? When, in God's name, we do what we all know in our gut needs to be done. It's been 3,448 days, 10 years, since I stood up at a high school in Connecticut, a grade school in Connecticut, where another government massacred 26 people, including 20 first graders at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Since then, There have been over 900 incidents of gunfires reported on school grounds. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Santa Fe High School in Texas. Oxford High School in Michigan. The list goes on and on, and the list grows. And yet again, the debate over gun control and gun ownership rights is at the center of all this. But there's a lot more to this than just the politicization of these mass killings. 
We've invited Reverend Kim Jackson, also a Georgia State Center on, for reflection. Reverend Jackson, uh, thanks for taking time. I appreciate it. It's good to be here, Rose. You know, I got an email last night um, after our election coverage from a listener who said, um, tired of grieving, it's time for action. And and I can only simply respond, I, I hear you. I, you know, I, I didn't know what, how really to respond. Because we hear this all the time. It's time for action. It's time for this. Um, but this nation really isn't clear what that action is or should be. Yeah, I, I would actually suggest that um, part of the grieving process um, is action and that we as a nation haven't really truly grieved. We've actually just moved on um, in order to fully process the loss of life. Um, one has to sit in those feelings, um, all of the of the emotions that come with that. Um, and then as you're working through that grief, um, that's when you take action. It's just like, you know, if, if somebody's parent dies, you have the grief and you have the process of having to deal with an estate, right? Mm-hmm. You kind of do both, but it's all it's all kind of a part of the same container. And, and I think that it's just really important that people feel the feelings that they have right now, that we honor the lives of those children and those teachers by truly grieving, experiencing that pain and moving to action. You are at the intersection of two interesting optics around here. You are a elected official. You are a pastoral person, I guess that's the best word to use. You're, you're a person of the cloth. And I don't know if that's old school. People still say that. Um, and you and I have had so many conversations on issues at this and, and you're at the intersection. What do you offer to people who say, okay, I hear what you're saying, Reverend Jackson, you're telling me to, in this moment of grief, I can also take action. But when you are an elected official, and we heard a lot of people coming out, you know, there was some expletives being used on social media to toward each other. I mean, these are elected officials, so we're seeing a lot here. Um, but because also we have kids, babies who were, who were killed. So can you understand someone saying that's a lot to ask someone to do to action be a part of their grief? You know, how, how do you work through that? How do you get to that? Because sometimes our emotions fuel our action and it may not be always a good thing, as you know. Right. Well, I think each of us will be called to take action in different ways. Um, so there are people right now who have children who are at home or will be coming home from school who are terrified. And some of the action will be talking to those children in a way that's age appropriate to help with that grief. Um, the reality is our children are not OK. That is very clear. I mean, these um, both of the mass shootings that we've had have taken place by 18 year old. We call them 18 year old men. Uh, But you and I both know if we actually probably met them, we'd probably refer to them as boys. Mm -hmm. Um, Our children are not okay, And so some of the action that is the that's work, too. I want to honor the work that teachers and parents and counselors are doing right now to help children make sense of this very senseless act. So that's action and that's a part of the process. And then yes, as elected officials and those of us who, and those who hold us accountable, um, there's a different set of actions that must take place. But I, I wanna recognize you don't have to do all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, some of you need to be very localized, very focused on um, ch- making sure that our children are okay um, so that we don't repeat this again, right? Broken children do more breaking and we wanna help avoid that too. Mm, broken children do more breaking. 
Last night, during our election special coverage, former state chair of the Georgia Republican Party and former lawmaker himself, Chuck Clay had this to say about, through his lens, what needs to happen. Take a listen. And I look forward to working with the members of the House and the Senate. That is the wrong cut. We will get that cut, the right cut, in a moment. But he talked about it it would take a collaboration of not just lawmakers, but it would also take a collaboration of faith leaders, um, advocates, you know, everyone coming together. Um, What do you make of that? Yeah, I I actually heard that cut last night, and I really appreciated him saying what we're doing right now is not working. Um, We just all need to admit that, whether you are on the side, whatever side of the issues around gun control and, and having guns you are on, we have to look at the precious faces of these 19 children and these two teachers and conclude that what we're doing is not working. Um, And then I think that that's really where we go from there is to say both sides, all sides, let's get to the table because right now um, people are dying and we've all gonna have to come to a place where we can compromise and make some real changes. And I do, for our listeners who didn't hear uh, Chuck Clay, I do wanna play it, I I believe we have it now. Thanks, Kevin, Let's, let's take a listen. Gosh, I would say on that side, Republican only, is be willing to reach out and discuss. You don't have to say, I'm going to agree with this. I don't have to say the loud voices are going to be screaming on both sides. But there needs to be a talk, not just with politicians, with, you know, with with deciders, decision makers, people of conscience, people of faith, uh, our senators, our congressmen, the chambers of commerce, up and down the aisle, or pews in church, or temples, seats in a synagogue, or a mosque, whatever it might be, and at least have people like me as a parent, and probably most on this, feel like, okay, uh, let's talk about, let's talk about what this is doing to the soul and psyche of this country. Interesting, there was something that he said in there, people of conscience, and that really for me personally, that was so interesting because I get emails all the time and people will ask these questions for both sides. And they will say, Rose, do these folks have a conscience when it comes to issues like this? So I'll first let you just comment on what you heard from, from, from Chuck Clay there. Yeah, I appreciated that call. And um, I, I hope that we all have consciences. I think that we do. It's a matter of really touching, getting in touch with those consciences and allowing that to be what moves us. Um, so I, I believe that we are all kind of born with that still, small, quiet voice inside of us that helps call us and urge us towards good. Um, but when we have a lot of outside voices, many of whom cast ballots for us, that can really drown out um, that small voice that's inside of us. And so um, I would urge people of conscience to really speak up, to drown out the sounds from gun lobbyists that insist that we should have more guns, um, but also to drown out the signs of uh, the sounds of people who are on the other extreme. You know, we talk about both sides, but the reality is, I, I mean, I'm a Georgian and I talk to lots of Georgians. There's more than just two sides on this issue. Mm-hmm. There are people who are all over. And I think that we need to all get together and have some conversation and come up with some compromise so that we can save real lives. What will be your message? And I, shouldn't assume, but I I think you will probably include this in your Sunday sermon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So my first 
my first message to my folks will be that this is a time of grieving, of a period where um, we need to feel sad and we need to feel angry and um, that that is a part of how we will work through this um, and to allow people to sit in the grief. Um, and then I will also do the work to really honor the lives that were lost um, and to talk about the importance of, of also praying for the, the young man who did the shooting. Um, he's somebody's son, he's somebody's cousin, he's somebody's somebody. Um, and his life was lost too. And so I, I will lift up the importance of recognizing that we are all created um, in God's image and that prayers need to be extended for all. You mentioned the the gunman in this situation being 18 years old, the shooter in Buffalo, also very young. You think of Dylan Roof, uh, young, uh, and then just gun violence in general in our nation, um, among our youth. What, what, often first things people say is, well, it's their upbringing or it's their environment or it's the parents' faults or they were taught this, that, you know, you know, hate has to be taught. Um, but there's so many, so many tentacles tied to why a, a very young person under the age of 21 would, would want to, First of all, purchase assault rifles, and then, you know, because we also have to note that uh, this this gunman uh, shot his grandmother as well, and was involved in a, a police chase, and then ran into the school. The the ages of these these gunmen, Reverend Jackson. Yeah, they're so young. I mean, they're, we know scientifically that their brains haven't even fully formed, right? Um, and and I'm not one here that's going to point fingers uh, and blame. I don't know anything about the circumstances in which this kid was raised. Um, so I, I'm not going to do that. Um, but what I will say is that we have a responsibility as a society to make sure that all of our children, um, particularly our adolescents, have access to the mental health care that they need. Um, chances are these young men, these 18-year-olds who've done these shootings, they showed signs. I mean, we know, in fact, that they showed some signs on social media. Mm -hmm. And we need to start taking those signs seriously and help get and, and start getting these young people help. Um, I think it's also important that we make it harder for young people to get their hands on guns. I mean, that that is also another piece of this, right? Um, you have to be 21 to buy alcohol because we understand that alcohol is dangerous and we want to make sure your minds are fully formed before you start imbibing. And, you know, so this, this notion that you can be an 18 year old child who can walk in and buy deadly weapons like this, um, you know, we, we've got to make some changes around that because they're just simply not ready for that. That leads to this question, which I've asked so many folks before in terms of what does sensible gun legislation look like or should look like? And I'm asking you this. Can you give some some men, some provisions? Can you offer some provisions that you think should be part of what we this whole conversation around sensible gun legislation? You know, two or three. Can you offer that? Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I can offer a few ideas, right? I don't believe that 18-year-olds should have access to AR-15s and to handguns and, and assault rifles. I mean, I just, I don't think that that's helpful. Mm -hmm. um, I, I also want to say that I want to sit down with people who sit on the other side of the aisle, who have, you know, 
very, very strong feelings around the Second Amendment and, and really hear their side too so we can come up with some points of compromise, right? I believe that we need to have background checks, strong background checks that um, raise red flags. I, I think that those things are essential, but I am also willing to have a conversation with those who would argue about why that might be complicated. Um, but what I know for sure is that our laws today are not working. Um, and because they're not working, children are dying. But as we both know, and a lot of folks know, listeners know, um, and Governor Kemp said this even before you all started working on your on this past legislative session, that he was going to support a constitutional carry. We do have that clip. I, I want to play that again. This is from January of this year. And I look forward to working with the members of the House and the Senate, many who are here today and groups like the NRA and GA2A on legislation, some of which has already been filed to get constitutional carry across the finish line this legislative session. And it happened. And so, Kim, uh, Reverend Jackson, as you know, this was uh, highly debated. Um, you were on the other side of this. Um, is there anything that you all think that you think you all can offer next session to change yeah, well, or, 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 you know, add another provision to the existing, to Georgia's existing gun laws. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to continue on people who are on the side of this issue or one of the sides that we stand on. We'll continue to offer um, information about and, and laws and to try to push for more background checks um, to create a, a point of of making sure that people actually have opportunities to learn how to handle their weapons. Um, we'll continue to introduce legislation to ban um, these weapons of war, right? Some of these things are, are, are purely, I mean, Rose, I wanna be really transparent with you. I grew up in a household and a family where hunting was normal. You know, guns were a part of, I mean, I. I used to teach um, young people how to safely handle guns. Um, mm -hmm. So this is not about being anti-guns. It's it's about making sure we introduce some safe checks, right? Um, making sure people know how to handle them well. Um, I know Senator Parent introduced legislation every year around trying to compel parents to have to lock their guns up so that their children can't just pick them up and use them. And so we'll continue to push for those things. Um, and, I, and I'm hoping that this you know, this horrible tragedy will result in some of my colleagues coming a bit closer and being willing to have some more conversations about how do we how do we meet each other in a better place. Um, the last thing I want to say about this is that the narrative has often been we just need more good guys with guns. And I just want to be clear that it's that's not working. Mm -hmm. We cannot we cannot arm ourselves out of this problem. Um, it's just not possible. Well, what role, and then as we wrap up, what role can faith leaders like yourself and the communities that they serve, what role can you all play? Yeah, I, I hope that people are talking in their congregations and their mosque and in their synagogues and, and with people who are of good conscience about um, what do they want to ask of lawmakers? 
what ideas do they want to bring to us around how we might solve this problem? Um, and then I hope that faith leaders, and this is certainly the work that I try to do as a faith leader, is that I try to work really closely with my congregants to help them get access to the mental health care that they need, uh, to help make sure that they have a place where they can talk safely about their fears, about their anger, about the things that are troubling them. Um, that's one of the real spaces that I think faith leaders can provide is beginning to help folks and young people in particular, right? Um, I think that youth ministers, those who work with youth, they're in a precious place where they can provide a container for teenagers to come to them safely and to begin to explore some of these things that are deeply troubling them. Reverend Kim Jackson, also a Georgia State Senator, as always, we thank you for taking the time and sharing your, your insight. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, and my prayers are with everybody. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Yeah, you know, November 8th is many, many months away. But listen, for those candidates who won last night in Georgia's primary elections, we know it's another round of campaigning. As we heard from Georgia Governor Brian Kemp and what he told his supporters. But I want to be crystal clear with all of you here tonight. Our battle is far from over. Tonight, tonight, the fight for the soul of our state begins to make sure that Stacey Abrams is not going to be our governor or the next president. Well, there's a lot to get to. So what now? Well, we're going to bring in our regular Georgia politics contributors. Now, in just a moment, we will be joined by Julianne Thompson, a Republican strategist and president of Main Street Network Strategies. But I'm joined now by Fred Hicks, Atlanta-based political strategist and demographer in his own right. Uh, Fred, thanks for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. Glad to be back this week. Uh, yeah. Uh, first of all, you know, I, I, Fred, what you doing? Why are you making all that noise? We we go Sorry. through this every time you come on the program. I know. I'm and then you email me way. and say, why are you chastising me publicly? <laughs> <laughs> but how you feeling? I'll be better. I'm feeling pretty okay. All right. pretty okay. That's good. Listen, let's um, talk about just reaction. Listen, Governor Kemp's huge win over David Perdue, that wasn't, was that a surprise that Margin was that a surprise for you? Well, you know the margin definitely was. You know, and Rose, the last couple of times we've been on, have talked about how I thought that Brian Kemp was going to win, Governor Kemp rather, and that it wouldn't be close. But I thought it would be 52, 53. You know, anything in politics over fifty-five percent is considered a blowout. Mm -hmm. When you top seventy percent, I mean, that's almost unheard of. And so that was really amazing, and I think a testament to the quality. Two things to the quality of the campaign that the, that the governor ran, but also when you look at the record turnout we saw on the Republican side, that's a strong repudiation of Trumpism, that people turned out in record numbers to say no to Trumpism in the Republican primary. And I believe we have, is, is Julianne available? Julianne, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I am here. I was just asking uh, your, your counterpart there, uh, Fred Hicks, about just the, the large margin that Governor Brian Kemp won over well, just David Perdue. I mean, obviously the others too, but uh, were you surprised by that huge margin? I was slightly surprised. I mean, I knew I, I, I knew that Brian Kemp was going to win. I thought it would be more like maybe 60 to 65%. I, I was surprised that 
at the amount at the 73% most definitely. But that being said, like I, I agree with what Fred said a second ago, I think that it was just, um, it was a very decisive victory for the governor. It was a very decisive victory um, down the ballot actually for uh, the majority of the candidates that were not endorsed by the former president to to come out and win with the margins that they had. And, uh, you know, most especially for Brad Raffensperger to be able to win, uh, you know, with 52 percent and avoid a runoff was was very monumental and um, and was definitely a shot across the bow by the people of Georgia saying that, you know, they will make up their own minds who their leaders will be, and they won't take any sort of direction from Florida. There was a piece in, from Political this morning that said, quote, in, in, as it relates to Governor Kemp here, that the governor outmaneuvered them, talking about Trump supporters, by suffocating Purdue's campaign before it could get any traction, according to more than a dozen interviews with strategists, donors, and party officials involved in the campaign, close quote. You agree with that, Julianne, that Governor Kemp, party strategy was getting out early and 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 sort of dismantling any any sort of 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 traction for Purdue. Well, I mean, number one, what what incumbent would not do that? You know, that's that's just uh, that's just something that any incumbent would do because that would be smart campaigning. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't you know, Senator Purdue announced that he was going to run fairly late. Um, so he got a, a much later start, um, of course, than, than the governor did. That being said, I don't think that even though it might have changed the margin slightly, I don't believe that it would have changed the result mm-hmm. of the election. Um, and, I, and like I said, it was a, a decisive victory for, for the governor. Let me stick with you because you have on this program uh, been very open and 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 we think authentic in terms about re- the Republicans needing to abandon the the false narrative that the 2020 presidential election was stolen from Donald Trump. You had you were very vocal about that. What does this win by not only Governor Brian Kemp but Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger? Does it say anything about the influence and endorsement of former President Donald Trump just maybe just waning or or dissipating at this point that it doesn't matter anymore? Well, I think what it says, particularly about the state of Georgia, is that people are not looking in the rearview mirror. They are looking forward and they are talking about those kitchen table issues that are important to them. They're and they're looking for candidates that are a representative of the public, the kind of public policies that are needed to be put in place to solve a lot of the, the problems that we're having as, as a country right now, um, you know, of course, on the state level. And I think that that is the kind of campaign. Those are the things that Governor Kemp talked about. Those are things that the vast majority of victorious candidates talked about. Um, and, and I believe that that is why the governor's campaign resonated so strongly with the citizens of Georgia. Fred, let me get your thoughts on this in terms of the influence and endorsement of former President Donald Trump. Is it no longer that that big, that influential, especially here in Georgia? Fred? 
Yes, it's okay. I wasn't sure if you could hear me. So, you know, what I found to be very interesting about yesterday's results on the Republican side, to your point, is if we go back to 2018, in both Florida, in the case of the Ron DeSantis gubernatorial primary, and in Georgia, in a runoff between Casey Cagle and Brian Kemp, we saw that a Trump endorsement was able to elevate candidates by 20, 30, 40 points into massive wins. I mean, Ron DeSantis was 27 points behind Murphy in Florida when he received Donald Trump's endorsement. You look at yesterday here in Georgia, mm -hmm. and it's easy to look at what happened in the governor's race, but as Julianne mentioned, the success that Brad Raffensperger had, I mean, I think Raffensperger might have been more at the center of, of uh, Trump's ire than even Brian Kemp was. But then also we looked down, we talked a little bit about this the other day. You look at someone like a Jake Evans in the sixth congressional seat, mm -hmm. that endorsement four years ago would have been enough to elevate him to a win, and it did not. He's in a runoff. Uh, Vernon Jones, that endorsement in the 10th Congressional District four years ago would have been enough to elevate him to an outright win. He's in a runoff. And so I think when you look up and down the ballot, um, and pe for people who say, well, Herschel Walker, I would contend that given his status in Georgia, you know, he would have been fine anyway. Maybe the endorsement added more points to him. Mm -hmm. But the general feeling, I mean, he's the most famous bulldog ever. Georgia just won the national championship. He was going to be fine, whether he ran as a Democrat or a Republican. So it definitely looks at it. It seems to me that it's waning. And I, I like I think of it this way. And I'll, something for your listeners to consider. You know, people say that in 2021, Georgia saved the country. Right. And I know Julianne and Republicans might say one way, see it a different way. In 2022, Georgia saved the Republican Party from Trumpism, and so potentially. And so, you know, there's always been this tension within the Republican Party since Trump emerged, since he walked out or came out, came out the elevator, of he's not a real Republican, he's, it's about him, it's not about the party, but he had such mass appeal that they couldn't do a whole lot about it, whether you were a Bush, uh, whether you were a McCain, uh, whether you were a McConnell. And so I think now it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with the direction of the Republican Party going forward. My, uh, Vice President Pence came to town, endorsed mm -hmm. Brian Kemp, and did um, a, a rally basically at the same time that Trump did a virtual rally for Purdue. So I don't think this is a reflect, reflection of a, that people don't, that Republicans don't want the policies that Trump talked about, but they want a different messenger. And that's what I get from that. Well, let me ask you all this, and Fred, I'll stay with you on this. Then let's 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 focus on Herschel Walker for a moment. Then, does he distance himself? Does he still need the support and the endorsement? Does it still need to continue? Does he need to have Donald Trump come down here and stump for him? Because he's up against you know Senator Raphael Warnock, who's raised a ton of money, and they both have raised a ton of money. Or can he say, you know what, I, I've gotten past that first hurdle now? Let's just see. I, I really maybe should not be so heavy on the Trump, the Trumpism, if you will. Well, two things. Number one, I think that uh, he gave us a tell on Monday when he refused to say for whom he was voting for governor. That was very interesting to me. Um, if he had just going to pledge complete fealty to Trump, he would have said he voted for David Perdue if that's what he did. But he refused to say. So that also tells me that he has a bit of political acumen because it doesn't make sense if you're him and you're going to win anyway to isolate any wing of the party. So your question, though, I think speaks to the challenge that Republicans went um, to the task that Republicans have in November anyway. How do you 
keep the Trump wing of the party in the fold because that's what happened in January of last year, right? The people stayed home. Uh, Trump said the election was the election was rigged, and so people stayed home, and you ended up with two Democratic senators. So do you uh, do they stay home? How do you keep them in the field in the fold while also figuring out a way to keep the central centrist or traditional Republicans there and maybe peeling off a few votes from Stacey Abrams and, and Raphael Warnock and the other crew down the line. So I'm not saying it can't be done, but that's just how you have to look at it. If I were in the war room last night or if I'm in the, the strategy room this morning, those are the three things that you have to figure out how to do. Keep the Trump voters in the party. Number two, you know, um, keep keep your steam that you have, right? And then number three, is there an opportunity, a place to pick up some, some votes from from uh, the C.C. Abrams and referee on Warnock team. Well, Julianne, you heard what Fred had to say there. Are you in agreement that for folks like a Herschel Walker and, and others, that they have to come up with some strategy to keep the Trump supporters in the fold moving toward November? I, I totally agree with everything he said, because uh, the former president's support and coming to the state of Georgia to stump for for Herschel Walker, you know, it, it can be a double-edged sword. On one hand, it can drive out those Trump voters, um, and, and get them back to the polls to make sure that Republicans have the numbers that they need. And then at the same time, it can turn off and alienate some of the more traditional Republicans or mm-hmm. some of the swing voters that are not that are not keen on the former president's uh, rhetoric. So, you know, it, it, it could go either way where that is concerned. So if he is going to be involved um, in Herschel Walker's campaign and then coming to Georgia to stump for Herschel Walker, they have to be very careful and surgical about the way that that they use his involvement in the campaign because it could make or break things. Julianne, let me ask you this. Should David Perdue endorse, break bread, have a handshake, whatever, go fishing with Kemp and, and let voters know and let their base know that all is well? He absolutely should, and I believe he will. Yes. Fred, what do you think? I think he will. I think he will for sure. And that's going to um, he doesn't have a another path forward and really another option. So I think he will. Let's move on to some other races. Fred, I'll stay with you for a moment. Any other surprises there in terms of who won or, or who didn't win? Yeah. You know, on the Democratic side, we talked a lot about the Republican side, but on the Democratic side, there were two really big surprises yesterday. Uh, number one, that Lucy McBath won and won by such a large margin. So wait, let's back up. Are you surprised she won? No, by the large margin. Okay. I'm surprised that she won by the margin. And that there wasn't a runoff, right? Because Lucy, or Congresswoman McBath, was running in a new district against someone who's lived in Gwinnett and all of that. Uh, So I was surprised by the large margin, given the number of Gwinnett supporters that uh, Carolyn Bordeaux had. And I think that's interesting because it it was the liberal wing, so to speak, of the Democratic Party versus the more centrist wing. Mm -hmm. And in that case... With uh, Lucy's win and Nabila Islam's win, and for the state senate seat, that's part of that. That shows that that part of this, uh, of Gwinnett anyway is definitely more to the left. The second big win, and it was the big surprise I think statewide, was that Alicia Thomas Searcy won outright in the state superintendent of schools race. Remember, she ran in 2014. Mm-hmm. The party coalesced against her. She lost in a runoff to Val, um, and she came back strong and won with almost 58 percent of the vote this time. Let's focus on education for a moment, because also she has a lot of support from the school choice folks. And you can throw in charter folks and and Wells, all that. That was a big part of that. But is that enough support with Richard Woods? 
So I think for Alicia, it's going to be really interesting because, you know, everything about her is pretty much a traditional Democrat, right? NAACP, she was the first legislator, first black legislator elected in Cobb County's history when she was elected right out of Spelman. She went to Spelman, uh, but she has been an advocate for choice. And I think that, um, well, I think what she would say is that her focus is that kids and families need to have an option rather than choice, an option for what works best for them. Now, I think that, and this, this brings back the first segment where you had Reverend Jackson on, we knew going into yesterday's election that we were going to have a big seismic shift with the road decision at some point in June. Mm-hmm. But now when we talk about guns and guns in schools, I think that what happened yesterday could very well impact that, that race through state, you, state superintendent of schools. Do you think then the candidates, and Julianne, you can answer too, will have to talk about whether or not, again, we revisit this because there are some lawmakers that say, well, now we need to train our teachers and equip our teachers with weapons in the the classroom. And as I can't take credit, but credit for this, but I saw a tweet which I thought was very compelling. It said, really, you want to have our teachers have weapons and wear body armor and you're only paying them $50,000 a year? I mean, a whole lot of optics tied to that. But you think then guns and, and, and safety and security will be a, a big part of the superintendent's race here in Georgia? I think it can be. I think it will be for sure. Um, because when you look at what happened yesterday, or you go back to Sandy Hook, a lot of these are happening in schools, right? Or with young people who are coming out of school. And so I, I'm not just with the superintendent's race, but uh, I'm sure Stacey Abrams and, and, and Reverend Warnock would not, don't really want to get into the whole gun debate. But, um, you know, I watched Steve Kerr's, the, the Golden State Warriors head coach. I watched his, his uh, pregame press conference last night. We pointed out that 90% of Americans want some kind of background checks, and there are 50, 50 senators who won't do it. And he said he's just had enough. And we know that sports, and you play sports, sports is often uh, at the vanguard of social change. We talk about Jackie Robinson, mm-hmm. or we talk about Jason Collins uh, when he came out as the mm-hmm. first openly LGBT player um, in basketball, things of that nature. So I think that uh, whether we wanted it to or not, we are in uh, for a summer of social um, of social reckoning because 14 kids, and these aren't black kids, these aren't white kids, they're like these are Latino kids, so it's affecting everyone. I think, yeah, this well, is a 19, there were 19 kids that, 19, were, no, 19 19. Kids that were killed and, and two adults. Julian, I want to get yes. your thoughts on that then. Uh, first, let's back up in terms of gun, gun legislation, gun rights, whatever folks, however they want to paint this, this being key not only for the state superintendent's race but just in general in messaging from both parties here in georgia and and we talked about this last night if you're an elected official how careful do you have to craft your message here because lives have been lost as well well yes and first and foremost i just want to express how deeply sorry i am uh for those families in in texas they're they're just no words, and I cannot imagine what they're going through. Um, and I, I cringe when I hear politicians immediately come on television and start using it as a political football without letting the time of grieving and mourning um, pass. But it, it is going to be an important issue uh, that, that we discuss over, over the summer and going into the general election. And, um, you know, I, I know... I mean, there are there are good people on both sides of the aisle that want to solve this problem. They just have different ways of getting there. And what I am hoping is that we can put a lot of the the hatefulness and the rhetoric aside, and sit down and come up with some serious 
some serious solutions to these problems and, and really be able to discuss it without making it a political football. But for some um, voters, because, but for some voters, yeah. and Juliana, you and Fred know this, they want to know, how do you feel about sure. abortion? How do you feel about the Second Amendment? They want you to give a clear cut, I'm for or sure. I'm against. And, and so if you're an elected official, regardless of what side you're on, you have to craft this message. No, you do. And, I, and I'm and i not saying that they shouldn't. They mm-hmm. should. But what I'm saying is that they should be solutions based in their approach versus kicking the can down the road, which we seem to see in both parties about many different issues. And that's what they've done about this issue for, for many years. And because they could never come to terms with agreeing on a solution where this is concerned. I believe, like Fred said uh, earlier, that people, there are things that people can agree on. People can agree on the background checks and extending background checks. People can agree on a lot of different ways to get to to solutions to solving this problem, um, which Republicans are also very much in support of. And I don't know necessarily about arming teachers, but certainly having more of the service officers in the school and, you know, making sure that that schools are secure and that, yes, there should be armed service officers in the school. I believe that. Um, But Mm -hmm. as far as arming teachers are concerned, I mean, there might be some Republicans that are definitely in support of that. But you can't I, I just don't believe you can you can force that on a teacher. Um, that's you know, that's not what they signed up for. And it is such a shame and such a tragedy that we are in the, in the situation that we're in in the United States. And there's a lot of things we need to come to terms with, not just not just gun issues, not just security issues, but a lot of a lot of things in the heart and soul that we need to come to terms with if we're ever going to solve these kinds of problems and this terrible, disgusting violence that has taken over our nation. Well, Juliana, let me stay with you for a moment because I want to talk about another issue. And, and obviously this leaked draft from Supreme Court in terms of possibly overturning Roe versus Wade here. If you are Republicans and you've got this and whatever comes out in June, the expected what it is expected that it, it could be overturned here or it could be kicked back to the states um, if for the Republican Party. They haven't really differed in terms of their strategies, decades in the making, some would say. But they're, they do have a different and a growing voter block that's different than 50 years ago. And women are part of that, obviously. How do you see crafting this message for the Republican Party leading up to November? And especially well, if I it is kicked th- back to the states. Well, that that was really the only option in in the uh, in the leaked document was the fact that ultimately they were taking it. It would go back to the states. So I think that it's important for for the Republican Party to make people understand, um, you know, of course, the Republican Party continues to be the party of of the pro-life issue that is part of the Republican Party platform. Uh, but to those people that are very concerned about this particular issue that are possibly pro-choice Republicans or pro-choice crossover votes, it's important to make them understand there's nothing about this leaked memo uh, that overturns abortion and makes abortion illegal in this country. It just kicks it back to the states and allows the states to make that determination for their own state. 
Fred, what do you want to add? Ooh, I mean, you know, I love you, Julianne, but that, I think that's that's <laughs> so technically on paper it does, but they're doing that knowing that particularly across the Southeast um, in 30 plus states that are controlled by Republican governors and legislatures, that that is in effect at at least those 30 plus states going to make it illegal. And and we saw in Oklahoma, we're talking they're talking about making it illegal at the point of fertilization. Uh, so whether we're not even talking about viability, and we're talking about um, there's this push now that uh, exceptions for rape and incest in the mother's life those are all off the table. And what a difference the 30 years have made. I remember the 92 presidential mm-hmm. election where George Bush, when he was up for re-election, said, "Well, of course there are exceptions for the life of the mother and rape and incest." So I'm not uh, that that technically yes, but then there were also other things in the leaked memo around privacy that are also very problematic and given the government ability to encroach. So that's a tough one. I know we're, all, we're almost out of time. Rose, I do want to say there are two other races that were that are going to be really interesting. Mm-hmm. And again, remind the voters that we have, a, we have a runoff coming up on June 21st, so it's not over. And on the Democratic side, you have three statewide runoffs. You have Secretary of State, we have B. Wynn versus D. Dawkins-Sagler, Secretary mm-hmm. of Labor, where you William Bodie and Nicole Horn. And then you have your favorite person, Kwanzaa Hall. Now, why are you doing that? Now you're being messy. Because, <laughs> no, no. you know, you know that Kwanzaa and I fuss a lot. It, it's, you know, but I fuss Dude, with, and that's let everybody know. I fuss with everybody. I fuss with everybody, but you get fussed at when you come on here and you talk nonsense. I don't care what your political affiliation <laughs> is, but you can't, you can't talk nonsense. Uh, but let's talk about Lieutenant Governor that race on the Democratic side for a second. Kwanzaa Hall, who got in late. Charlie Bailey, who may not have been that recognizable name as Kwanzaa Hall. And and Charlie Bailey had former Atlanta Mayor Shirley Franklin in a commercial that endorsed him. Kwanzaa Hall kind of came came out of nowhere. Were were you surprised by that? Well, let's be clear. You got to remember, Charlie Bailey was a Democratic nominee for attorney general four years ago. Right. So it's not like he is unfamiliar, hasn't been on the ballot for many of the, for many people who voted. Uh, but to your point, yeah, Kwanzaa got in there late, uh, later in the game. And I think there's actually a bit of a, honestly, um, you know, and, and a, you know, I did not work in his campaign this time, but, you know, full disclosure, I ran his congressional campaign. Um, you know, there's there's a bit of, uh, I think his name idea is a lot stronger than people imagine. And I think when you look at that race, um, Charlie Bailey spent over a million dollars on TV and radio um, to barely make the runoff and not quite crack 20 percent. Kwanzaa, I haven't looked at his expenditures, but they, I know there was they, they weren't anywhere in that ballpark. So that's interesting. Now, a runoff is often very different than a general election. And so what I tell people all the time and my clients is that it's like tapping on glass. And so it, you, you keep tapping away until it breaks. So having Mayor Franklin and other supporters might actually benefit Charlie in this runoff. I want to get to U.S. House District 6 for a second and get Julianne's take on this because you had mentioned earlier Jake Evans and now Rich McCormick are in that runoff. And Julianne, let me ask you this, because Jake Evans had that commercial running where he had Donald Trump support. Now in this runoff, does Jake Evans maybe pull back a little bit and not not make that that affiliation there? I would doubt seriously that he's going to pull back at all because, I mean, I, his father has been has been after that endorsement now for quite a long time for him, ever since he has gotten back from being an ambassador um, for the Trump administration. So I doubt very seriously that Jake is going to be pulling back on that endorsement. Um, looking at those numbers, I mean, you have 
Rich McCormick, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but I believe it was Rich was around 44% and Jake was right at around 23%. Um, and, and that is a, that is a pretty big, a pretty big difference. So it'll be interesting to see, um, where some of the, some of the other candidates, I think the third place candidate was Megan Hansen. So it'll be interesting to see where Megan Hansen throws her mm-hmm. support and some of the other candidates throw their support. And of course, it all depends on who shows up uh, to vote, who has the most passion to vote for their candidate. Um, of course, I would never attempt to call that, but, um, but you know, it, it's most definitely an interesting race, just as uh, Congressional District 10 and, and the runoff between Mike Collins and Vernon Jones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just wanted to mention quickly uh, before before we finish uh, that David Clark, who is a, a returning state house member and Bonnie Rich, who is a returning state house member, they were redistricted into the same district. Mm-hmm. So they ran against each other in the primary uh, last night. And Bonnie Rich uh, was defeated mm-hmm. by David Clark Bonnie Rich was the candidate who was supported by David Ralston. She is the uh, has been the uh, the caucus leader, the Republican caucus leader uh, for the majority in the House. Mm-hmm. And so this is a uh, a pretty big blow where that is concerned as well. Yeah. Um, but David Clark pulled that off last night. I believe it was around 60-40. Yeah. So much more to talk about. We'll, of course, have you all back on throughout the summer. Julianne Thompson, a Republican strategist and the president of Main Street Network Strategies, Fred Hicks, Atlanta-based political strategist and demographer. Thank you both for taking the time. Thank you for always agreeing to join us and give your perspective. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. us. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Rezell. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let me know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And some of y'all email me every day. That's okay. I'm cool with it. If you missed any of today's show, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. From Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.